Let's pray and ask that God would illuminate his word for us as we turn there together. Let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, you light our lamp and enlighten our darkness. Your way is perfect and your word always proves true. You are a shield for all who take refuge in you. Enlighten us now by the power of your spirit that we may know and keep your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in God's word to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And we've come to uh, verse 13 of Mark chapter 10. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series through the book of Mark. And we've come to Mark chapter 10, 13, which in God's providence turns out to be a wonderful text to be considering this morning, as we've just witnessed. I wish I could say this was my ingenuity that has arrived us here uh, through our course of preaching. But this is all of the Lord that we've come to Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 13 through 16. Uh, Jesus blessing the little children. Um, And so we want to read this short passage together and consider it uh, this morning. So Mark chapter 10, beginning our reading at verse 13. Uh, It's on page 1076 of our Pew Bibles, most of our Pew Bibles. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. So Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 13. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the, little child, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Uh, Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, We've noticed as we've gone along how this this particular chapter of Mark has been so helpful in showing us what kind of Messiah Christ has come to be. Um, In the last passage, we considered how Jesus has come to solve our hardness of hearts, uh, the real problem that God's people have always had, a hardness in their hearts towards God and towards his commands, And that Jesus has come as the Messiah to solve our problem, to do what the law of Moses could not do by his own grace and truth, uh, to die for our hard-heartedness, to be raised for our justification, to cling to us in steadfast love as a faithful Lord, to give us a heart of flesh by his spirit that we might have soft hearts to believe in him and to follow him all our days. And in this passage, wonderfully, Jesus continues to show us what kind of Messiah he has come to be in this tender scene of him blessing the little children that are brought to him. Um, I read little children. Mark doesn't say little children, but there are other places in the gospel where he does. Luke is very insistent in the word that he uses that these are little children, so that's where my mistake came from and where uh, that thought comes from. These are little children that are being brought to Jesus that they might be blessed by him. And in this wonderful little scene, Mark tells us important things about our Savior. We see his covenant commitment, we see his clear call, and we see his compassionate care. And that's how we want to think about these verses together. His covenant commitment, his clear call, and his compassionate care as our Savior. His covenant commitment is really seen as these crowds come seeking the Lord's blessing and bringing their children to him that he might touch them. 
what they mean is that he might lay his hands on them and bless them. That's what they are seeking. And it was fairly common for people to do this when a holy man came to town. If you met a rabbi or someone who was, who was recognized as being a particularly holy person, you would say, would you speak a blessing over our children? Would you pray for them? Um, now, we don't do that so much anymore. I don't get stopped on the street and asked to bless children um, as I walk around, but uh, it's all maybe because I don't wear this all the time. Um, people might not know, but um, we don't do that. But we still kind of think that way. I've noticed that when I am out with people or invited over to someone's house because I'm the pastor, they often ask me to pray. Um, And we know that James tells us that God hears the prayers of a righteous person. And so this wasn't a bad thing to do, to ask someone who was acknowledged to be a holy person to pray. That's essentially what you're doing, asking them to to put their hand on their child and to pray a blessing over them, uh, to pray that the Lord would bless them. This was a fairly common thing for people to do. And so they come seeking the Lord's blessing on their children, asking that he would pray and bless their children by laying his hands on them, and their access to Jesus is denied by the disciples. Uh, They come seeking a really good thing, and the disciples don't let them come, right? The disciples rebuke them. Now, we might want to ask if we could sit down with the disciples. We probably have lots of questions for how they ended up the way they did and a lot of things, but we might really want to ask them, why, why would you do that? If someone came with their child and wanted Jesus to bless the child, why would you stop them? Mark doesn't tell us, does he, why they rebuked these parents, why they wouldn't let the parents come to Jesus. We're not told why they did it, but we are told how Jesus reacts to it. How does Jesus react when he sees the disciples doing this? We read in verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them. He was indignant. Jesus is not, we don't hear that Jesus is indignant at any other point in the Gospels. We've heard about Jesus having strong emotions and reacting strongly to things. Um, We've seen Jesus be exasperated with the disciples and sigh loudly. Uh, We see Jesus' tears at other point in the gospel. We know he's sad. We know that he can be angry. This is the only time we read in the gospels that he was indignant, Um, which really means to be so irritated or annoyed at something because it's so wrong. Um, Maybe boys and girls, if you see something that's really wrong and you don't like it, that's, that's being indignant about something. And that's what Jesus is. The, the disciples have managed to provoke a reaction from our Lord that no one else in the Gospels provokes for him. Over this particular action, this is what makes Jesus indignant. And you can hear that he's indignant with what he says to them. Let the children come to me. Do not forbid them. Do not hinder them. Um, Jesus is speaking to them in semicolons. And when someone speaks to you in semicolons, they're not happy with you. Boys and girls, when I was a kid, you might find this hard to believe, I was not always on my best behavior. And occasionally my, pe- my parents would have to tell me to stop picking on my little brother. And if I heard my, my father say to me or my mother say to me, leave him alone, don't touch him again. That's what parents are speaking with a semicolon. There's no and there. 
There's no anything else. It's two short commands, positive and negative. Leave them alone. Don't touch them. Maybe some of you have heard this before as a little child or found yourself saying it. When parents speak in semicolons, it's not good. Jesus is speaking in a semicolon to his disciples. Let them come. Do not forbid them. Now, why is he so indignant about this, that they would do this? How have they managed to provoke this reaction from him in this particular instance where they've done this nowhere else in the Gospels? Why is the Lord so indignant with them? Uh, He's indignant because of who these children are, and he's indignant because of who he is. Who are these children who are being brought to him? These are the children of Israel. Right? We know that for sure about them. We don't know how old all of them were, but we know that they were in the area of Judea. They were children of Israel being brought to Jesus. They are part of the covenant people of God. Right? And what we heard in our form for baptism is so helpful because it reminds us of the covenant that God made with his people. And what was the covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis 17, 7 and 8? And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. In verse 8, he said, I will be their God. That was his promise. I will be God to you and your children after you forever. Right? So as one person put it, when God says, I will be your God, this is the heart of the covenant. Guaranteeing that God will protect his people and provide them with life and prosperity. That is the heart of the covenant promise that God makes. I will be your God I will be your God to protect you. I will be your God to provide for you life and prosperity. I will be your God. That's the heart of the covenant. And God reminded Abraham, this is an everlasting covenant. I will be God to you and your offspring after you forever. I will never stop being your God. That was the promise that he made. And why is it an everlasting covenant? The commentator went on to say, God's covenant endures forever because he is faithful and does not change. The covenant is everlasting because God is everlasting. He's faithful to his promises. He does not change when he's promised. When he says, I will be your God, he means it. And that's the promise that God has made. I will be God to you and your offspring after you. I will be God to you and to your children. And Jesus is so indignant because he is affirming that relationship that these children have with their God. Let them come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. They are part of my dominion. They are my kingdom subjects. And when they are brought to their king seeking his blessing, don't turn them away. That's, he's indignant because of who they are. He's also indignant because of who he is. Right? The kingdom belongs to them. And Jesus is saying, and I am their king. 
Don't try to deny my children the rights that are theirs. The members of my kingdom, Jesus is saying, have access to me. I am their king. If they come to me seeking blessing, I will give it. Right? What has been the whole force of Mark's gospel? It's that the kingdom has come in Jesus Christ. And why has the kingdom come in Jesus Christ? Because he is the king. That's who he is. In a profound sense, not only is Jesus saying to them, God promised to be God to these children. Jesus is saying to them, I promised to be God to these children. He is Yahweh, come in the flesh. He is the covenant God who made this promise. Who was it that came to Abraham in Genesis 17 and said, I am Yahweh? It's Jesus. He's the Lord who made the promise. He is the covenant Lord, and he is also the promised king. Right? He comes as Messiah, as the king over people of God, the king they were all looking for. Right? Great David's greater son. That's who Messiah was going to be. And why was it important that he would come and be a king like David was? Because David was the high watermark of the kingship in Israel. That's why when you read the Old Testament, if, if anyone... If you want to praise a king, you say he walked in the steps of his father, David. And what was it that made David such a great king? He was a man after God's own heart. And how did he demonstrate that? In his great love for God and his great love for God's people. It should be a delight to us to read what is said of King David in, or what King David says of himself in Psalm 16, verses 2 and 3. I say to the Lord, I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord, you are my master. I have no good apart from you. Here was a king who recognized that Yahweh was his master. This king was not master, this king was not Lord, God was Lord. That's what made David a great king. He acknowledged the lordship of God. And he said, I have no good apart from you. He acknowledged that everything he needed was in his God. That was his heart for the Lord. And Psalm 16 also tells us what his heart for the people were. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David was a great king because he loved the Lord and because he loved the Lord's people. He was the king, but he looked out over the land and said, you know, as for these saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. A king who feels that way about his subjects is bound to be a good king because he loves them and holds them up. And he was a king who defended his people and saw that justice was done in his kingdom, not perfectly, but sincerely, devotedly before the Lord. But as great as David's love for God and for 
his people was. It's nothing compared to how Christ loves his father and loves his people. And that's the kind of king he's come to be. Who says of his people, these are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. In a profound way, that's what he's saying to his disciples. You are standing between me and these excellent ones in whom is all my delight, who come seeking my blessing. They will not be turned away by you if they come seeking blessing from me. I have promised, and I will not fail my people. When they come seeking my blessing, they will have it, and they will not be denied. This is a wonderful truth about Christ's covenant commitment to the promises that he has made. And it should delight our hearts not to just think about his love for these children so many years ago, but to think of how this covenant speaks to us still today. Because the New Testament encourages all believers to think of themselves as part of this covenant. The Apostle Paul in particular takes pains to say and to teach, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are part of the family of Abraham. You may not be part of the family of Abraham by the flesh, by descent, but Paul says everyone who believes is a child of Abraham. Everyone who believes is part of this covenant family. Right? He says that in Romans 4.16, where we know he's writing to both Jews and Gentiles in the church of Rome. But what does he say in Romans 4.16? That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the inherit adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Abraham is the father of us all, Paul says to the Christian church. He reaffirms this in Galatians 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Why is that important? Whether we are Jewish or whether we don't have a drop of Jewish blood in us, it means that we are all reckoned sons of Abraham by faith. And what does that mean if we are children of Abraham? It means that the promise is to us. That when God said, I will be God to you and your descendants after you for an everlasting covenant, he was not just speaking to Israelites, he was speaking to us. That this covenant commitment Jesus has is not just to Old Testament Israel, but to the entire family of Abraham. Everyone who is reckoned a child of Abraham by faith. That means through the long generations, we are the children of Abraham to whom God has promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. Which means the same covenant commitment that our Lord showed to these little children, he still shows to us. He still is committed to our life to our protection, to our prosperity. That promise is for us, and his covenant commitment is still the same to us because he is still the same everlasting God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
his covenant commitment to them is his covenant commitment to us. We should be comforted by that. Um, But immediately he reminds us not only of the promises, but of the obligations, as we heard in our form for baptism. Uh, The covenant of grace contains promises, but there are expectations that flow from those promises. There are obligations subsequent to those promises that God's people must hear. And that's why God gives this clear call. Christ gives a clear call right after affirming his covenant commitment. Uh, The clear call that we see in verse, verse 15. When Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Right, directly following the reminder about Christ's identity and the identity of his people, he issues this clear call that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will certainly not enter into it. That not is a certainly not, will certainly not enter into the kingdom. Um, and what is Jesus teaching here? He's teaching us two critically important things to remember. The first is that the kingdom of God must be received. Right? It can't be earned. It can't be worked for. It has to be given. The only way to receive the kingdom is to receive it. You cannot go get it for yourself. It was interesting when I, when I looked up this Greek word, one of the lexicons said this word means to receive or accept an object or benefit for which the initiative rests with the giver, but the focus of attention on the transfer is upon the receiver. They might be thinking, well, thank you so much for sharing us and reading us the dictionary. How is that supposed to be helpful? Um, Well, it's helpful because for this reason. It says the focus of the verb is on the receiving, but what does that reception assume? It assumes that someone has taken the initiative to give you something. And so it's saying even though the, the focus is on receiving the kingdom, it's implying the kingdom is being given by someone. Who is giving the kingdom? It's the king. Jesus is the one from whom we must receive the kingdom. And when you're receiving a kingdom from a king, you have to receive it on his terms. That's why Jesus says not only firstly that you must receive the kingdom, but secondly that you have to receive the kingdom on the king's terms. How must the kingdom be received? It must be received like a child. It must be received like a child. Now, how are we to understand that? Well, think of it this way. Why do we need to instruct our children not to take things from strangers? Right? It's a crucial part of your instruction growing up uh, to be warned about the state of the world. And we sometimes have to, we have to tell our children, right, you, there are things you should not take from a stranger. Um, now, why do you need to tell a child that? Because in themselves, they will usually take things that they're offered. Um, we understand that about children, that they can be simple, unquestioning, and trustful in accepting what's offered to them. Now, when that comes from a stranger... That's dangerous. When it comes from the Savior, it can be trusted. And that's what Jesus is really saying. You must receive the kingdom, and you must receive it like a child. In that simple, trusting, unquestioning manner 
a child receives the things that are offered to them. That's how we have to receive the kingdom of God. We must be like children. And when God offers it to us, we must simply accept it and not question what he is offering to us. I was intrigued to read this week, somebody said this about the covenant relationship. They said, essentially, a covenant relationship is based on the surrender of control. That's what's inherent in the covenant relationship, a surrender of control. And this Reformed commentator went on to say, when the great king comes and offers to establish a covenant with you, you really have only two choices. You accept the covenant relationship on his terms and receive his benefits, or you can refuse it and face the consequences. But what's inherent in a covenant relationship with a greater king, like the Lord, is to surrender control to him and accept the covenant on his terms. There's no negotiating with the Lord. You can't come back and say, I like parts of this covenant. I like the I will be your God part. I'm not so sure I'm real keen to have to do all the things you require of your people. But if you want to be my God, that's fine with me. The Lord comes and says, the covenant relationship is, I will be your God. And your response is to be, walk before me and be blameless, as he told Abraham. We have to take what God offers us. It's It's a surrender of control to the Lord, giving ourselves over to him. How do we do that? Well, first we have to do it by recognizing that we are dead in our sins and misery and totally unable to save ourselves. We are guilty of eternal death. We can't even receive what he's offering to us unless he helps us to receive it. Recognizing we have nothing. We can do nothing. We are utterly dead and helpless. And then to receive what he's offering by grace through the faith that he gives us. To receive that grace by faith, to repent of our sins, and to respond to his grace by our lives of grateful obedience and service to him. That's what it means to receive the kingdom. To recognize you have nothing to offer the king, and that everything you're receiving, you're receiving from him. And to respond by repenting of your sins receiving his grace by faith, and responding by grateful obedience to him. And if we receive the kingdom that way, what is the promise? If you receive the kingdom like a child in that way, what is the promise? You will enter into it. What is it to enter into the kingdom of God? Well, we've already heard that. We heard that back in chapter 9 of Mark's gospel when the Lord was telling us the importance of following him and saying, you know, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to go into, into life with one hand than to go into the fires of hell. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to go into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out for it's better you to enter into life. Than... No, that's not what he said. It's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye. What has he already told us? To enter into the kingdom of God is to find life. To find eternal life in Christ. 
That's what it means to enter into the kingdom. To find life. And so Jesus' call here could not be clearer. Whoever will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will certainly not enter into it. Whoever does not surrender himself or herself to Jesus by repentance and faith will certainly not enter into eternal life. But the opposite is also true. If anyone does surrender himself or herself to Jesus in repentance and faith, he or she will certainly enter into life. He or she will certainly enter into the kingdom of God. And that's why we take comfort in the fact of God's covenant promises, that the promises are made to believers and their children, but we never stop reminding ourselves and our children that there is only one way to inherit eternal life. The only way to inherit eternal life is to respond as God has called us to respond. We can't take his promises for granted. We have to respond as he has called us to respond by surrendering ourselves to Christ in repentance and faith and trusting in him alone to save us. Those who do that will certainly find life. Now we have to acknowledge that the call to completely surrender yourself to the Lord is difficult. It's particularly difficult for adults to behave like children. We think somehow that's beneath us. Um, We acted like children when we were children, but now we're all grown up. We know better. Uh, Not when it comes to going to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a difficult thing to do, to surrender yourself completely to the Lord. To come to terms with that truth that we are totally dead in sin and trespass and cannot save ourselves. And that we are trusting ourselves entirely to the finished work of Christ to save us. Our nature rebels against that. We keep thinking to ourselves, let me keep a little piece of the work for myself, then I'll do that and I'll feel good that I'm doing a part of it. Right? The law is written on our hearts by nature, we like that. Right? If I say you have to receive Jesus by repentance and faith, then you need to do three more things. You'd all get your pens out and be excited because you'd like, good, a task to do. Because the law is written on our hearts by nature. We like that. We think, I can take some agency in that. I can do something about it. It's hard to realize you actually can't do anything about it. You have to trust yourself completely to Christ to do it all. And trust him to do it all. That's a hard thing to do. I think it's why Mark leaves us with this scene of Christ at the end of our passage. To remind us, when you think of it being difficult to commit yourself entirely to this Savior, to recognize the kind of Savior that we have. When we see his compassionate care that he gives to these children at the end of this text. I loved how one commentator put it. He said, Mark draws a delightful picture here. Each father and mother carries his little child into the very presence of Jesus. Jesus takes the first child in his arms and places the hand of his other arm upon its head. Then he tenderly or fervently blesses it by means of uttering a brief but earnest prayer to the father that his blessing may be bestowed on the child. While he does this, his heart filled with love and compassion goes out to this little one. Finished, he returns the child to the one who had brought it. 
He then treats the next little one in the same manner and the next until all have been blessed. It must have been a most impressive, comforting, and memorable scene. Right? Jesus is not like a, a politician walking through a crowded room, right? shaking a couple hands on this side, a couple hands on this side, doing the politician thing. Hey, I see you over there. Hey, I see you over there. You know, do, just kind of glad-handing the whole kind. He does this for every single one of these children. He does it for every single one of these children until they're all blessed. Till everyone who has come seeking a blessing receives a blessing. Maybe this is what the disciples objected to. Maybe they thought to themselves, Jesus does not have this kind of time to come and take each one of these children, bless each one of these children. Jesus doesn't have the time. He has important things to do and he has important places to go. He doesn't have time for this personal attention. And that's certainly true, isn't it? Jesus had important things to do and important places to go. He's in this text on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross for the sins of his people. He has important places to go. He has important things to do. But what is he teaching us here? Yes, he has important things to to do and important places to go but they're not so important that he does not have the time for his people. He has the time to bless each one of these children until until everyone who seeks a blessing is blessed. And that's important for us to keep in mind. You know, Christian, if you ever are tempted to think that Jesus doesn't have the time for me, or that maybe the thing I want to bring to him is too small in his sight, or too inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. I want you to remember this scene. Remember that Jesus had the time for every one of these little children that were brought to him, in spite of all that he had to do, and all that he had come to accomplish. He still had time for each of his children, And he still has time for each of his children. Even though he's gone to an important place, ascended to the right hand of his father, and even though he has important things to do, as all authority in heaven on earth have been given to him, and he's ruling and reigning over the whole world and defending us and preserving us in the salvation he's won for us, he's in an important place, he has important things to do, but they're not more important to him than you are. That's part of why he's gone, where he's gone. Is so that he might ever live to intercede for his people. That he might ever live there at the right hand of his father to bless you. And to be a blessing to you. Our call is to surrender ourselves to the Lord. But we're surrendering ourselves to a Lord who compassionately cares for his people like this. And that should encourage us to do what he's called us to do and to receive his kingdom like a child, knowing that by repentance and faith we will certainly enter into life. Thanks be to God for the inexpressible gift of a king like this. Amen.